0: So you guys are ready for a, a pop quiz, yes? So you know what an idiom is? Idiom is a, a saying like, yeah, I'm in deep water. That's an idiom. When I'm saying I'm in, I'm in deep water, what am I saying? Yeah, I'm in some trouble. I've got something that I can't handle. So what I'm going to do is uh, all of these idioms are connected with water. And so I'm gonna tell you what the idiom means and you tell me what the idiom is. I'll give you an example so you know the the routine. It's stuff like we just said, to be in deep water. That's an idiom. Uh, Here's another one. This would be the hint that I would give you. To defeat someone or something that you're competing with or to achieve much more than they do. The idiom is to blow something out of the water, okay? You know, we blew that team out of the water. So you guys ready? Father's Day. Be nice to me. Okay. (laughs) To be in a difficult situation, which is hard to deal with, with an emphasis on being punished for your actions. What's the idiom? To be in Hot hot water. Very good. Over here. Don't know what's happening with you guys over here, but this, when I was in school, I used to be sitting over here. I'd never get the answers, but you guys can do this. All right, here we go. Here's another one. To be critical of a plan that others thought was exciting or great to pour what kind of water on an idea? Cold water. All right, there we go. Boy, you guys are underwhelming me with your enthusiasm. When something belongs in the past and isn't important or troubling anymore, it's it's done. It, oh, now we're getting into it. Water under the bridge. Exactly, exactly. All right, here we go. When it seems that an idea, plan, or statement is wrong or false or isn't thought through, we say it Does not, doesn't hold water. I've been told that all the time by the staff here, that that idea doesn't hold water. Here's something, when when something has stopped making any progress, and it has failed and has no hope for the future, it's thought to be dead in the water. Good, all right, One. give you one more. To feel awkward or uncomfortable because you're in a situation which you've not experienced before uh, and where you don't belong. To be a fish out of water. So my sons one time, one of them gave me a a goldfish for a Father's Day present. And it's, you know, which is similar. It's like husbands giving their wives a a lawnmower for Mother's Day. You know, it's, hey, I think you'd really like this. So they said, dad, we think you'd really like a goldfish. And uh, everything was going great until... They came by the the living room area where the goldfish bowl was a few days later, and this goldfish sometime had gotten the notion that it belonged out of water and had jumped and was therefore no longer alive. A fish out of water is more than just something that might not be happening. It's a matter of life or death. Now, here in Northland, our, this vision that, w- that is, is governing the cadence of who we are as a people is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And another way to put that is engaging people to be a fish in water, to be human beings in the environment where we are. This is where a fish is fully alive. So, what is the water for a human being that enables us to be fully alive? It's what John talks about in his gospel. We're calling it awaken. He wants to awaken us to what it means to be back in the water, to be fully alive. At the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things I've written that you may believe believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So we're walking through what John, as an old man, wrote about this good news called the Gospel. What it means to awaken as human beings, to become fully fully alive, to be as fish would be hopping back in the water. And one aspect of what this water is all about, yes, it's the life of of the gospel, the life in his name, the life that only Jesus can provide. But if there's one word that could summarize what that water is, it would be worship. True worship. A human being is fully alive when he or she is engaging in true worship. Now I'm using that word "true" with the phrase "true worship" because that's what Jesus said, and that that distinguishes us from just worshiping. Every human being worships. You've never met somebody, including yourself, even if it's the first time you've been in church in a long time. You're a worshipper. You're really good at it. But that's how we're wired. David Foster Wallace is was a, an agnostic, a brilliant thinker and writer, tragically took his life uh, back in the, uh, about 10 years ago, not quite 10 years ago. And, but he was speaking uh, about a year before that at a commencement, Wall Street Journal did a report on what he said to the graduates. This is one of the things that he said in this commencement address. He said, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, There's actually no such thing as atheism because everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect Being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. All of us worship. The question is not whether you will worship today or whether you will worship this week. The question is what you'll worship. And to be a fish in water, to be a human being in the element in which we can thrive, It's to be involved in true worship, which is where Jesus led a conversation with a woman by a well a couple of thousand years ago in a place called Samaria. Last week, we started down that journey. Pastor Sean walked us through this introduction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman and how Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs, but Jesus didn't. And he struck up a conversation with her, so I'm going to review a little of what Sean read last week and taught about. Verse 10, Jesus answered this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, now here's who this woman is, we find out later in the text, She's been married five times. The guy she's living with now is not her husband. This is not 21st century Hollywood. It's first century Palestine. She was a result, was coming to the well at the middle of the day. Why would you do that? Because you're ostracized from your community. Uh, Everybody else would go to the well in the desert at the beginning, uh, early morning or early evening. So here she is. She's coming to be alone. There's this guy there, finds out it's Jesus. He's talking with her, asking her these questions. give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Now, some people might think if they're from a, a religiosity context, a fundamentalist, legalistic environment, and say, boy Jesus, you let her have it. He was not shaming her. That's not what he was doing. We know that from many of the other encounters he had in people that were dealing with real life stuff. What Jesus was doing is sur- uh, performing surgery with words, like a surgeon would use a scalpel, because he's wanting to, to go down to the core of what she was doing to try to quench her thirst. Her soul thirst. We've all got it. You've got a soul thirst. I've got soul thirst. We all have longings. We have those longings in common. We've talked about them on several occasions here. Longings like significance. uh, Longings for intimacy, for love, for security, for wholeness, for purpose, for acceptance, and shalom, and goodness, and truth, beauty, joy, justice, triumph, resolution, a yearning, a longing for home. This is not church people. This is every human being. We all have that, that thirst within us, but we all have our go-tos that we think will enable us to experience or have those things. Some things are downright sinful, some things are not sinful, but we feel like, okay, if if, if we, we replace God by pursuing something, maybe it's marriage or uh, degrees and education and so forth, and we elevate those things beyond their capacity to deliver. So when Jesus is bringing up men in marriage and reminding her that, you know what, you, you don't have any husband with you, the guy you live with with now is not your husband, you've been married five times, he's exposing for her men in marriage that she was going to, that was a primary go-to for her. We don't know all the cultural background, but bottom line, men in marriage were obviously something that she was diligently pursuing because of her station and what she needed for things like significance and intimacy, love, security, purpose, acceptance, We we don't know. For you, he might be saying something different. Go get your golf clubs and come back. Go get your degree, your Ph.D. and come back. Go get your 401K and come back. Go get your porn and come back. Go get your alcohol and come back. Go get your addiction to acceptance by the people around you. Because we're always trying to address those longings. And our go-to changes from moment to moment, day to day, perhaps. But we never seem to find it, which is what Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, wrote in the 17th century. He's known as a mathematician, philosopher, but he also was a passionate follower of Jesus. In fact, he wore inside his coat uh, words he had sewn in of a poem that he wrote, the night that he came to Christ. But he also wrote a brilliant treatise called Pensee about ponderings and thinking, and he said this, what else does this craving that you have, this longing that you've got, Proclaim, and he's referring to the helplessness, that it never works, it never seems to be enough. And he's been he's been talking about that in this particular passage, and he says, What does this craving proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the mark, an empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things about absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say only by God himself. That's where that phrase God-shaped vacuum comes from. Because we go, all those longings find their home in a longing for God. And there's a residue there. It's what Lewis referred to as that music that we're born remembering. And that's what Jesus is doing with this woman. He's saying, you know what? I've got water to drink that will actually address your thirst. So he keeps going. In verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Now it's a pretty abrupt thing for her to say. Why would she say such a thing? Well, if you had been talking with somebody and they all of a sudden exposed all of your idols in that moment, you'd try to change the subject too. So would I. It, it, I'm, used to, I'm actually used to this because I'm a pastor and I fly on airplanes. And somebody can be Chatty Cathy, and if your name is Kathy, I am so sorry, I have no idea where that, that, that phrase comes from. but somebody can be talk, 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 and then they get to the point, hey what do you do? And I say I'm a pastor. (laughs) Now before the great silence comes, usually they will talk about a relative that's a pastor, you know, the nephews, uncles, sisters, husbands, uh, sons, a pastor. So hopefully that makes me feel better, I guess. I don't know why they say that. But then usually the next thing is they'll try to change the subject. This woman She's tapping something that was of great debate between Samaritans and Jews. Uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had compromised. They had uh, syncretized their, their religion but with other uh, pagan religions of the people that uh, had, had, uh, they had been exiled to, their oppressors. And so the Jews felt like they're no longer pure in their worship. And they would go back and forth. One of the great points of debate between Jews and Samaritans was worship, where you worship, when you worship, how you worship. And so this woman, she's, you know, she's getting a little uncomfortable with how personal Jesus just got so she says let's talk about worship thinking she's changing the subject but here's the deal she's not changing the subject that's the subject that Jesus is leading her down. That's the subject Jesus has been talking about all along. Because the notion of me worshiping is not a religiosity thing, it's a humanity thing, and it has to do with my longings. Worship comes from the ancient English word, worth or worship. What do you attribute as worthy of bringing your longings to, to be fulfilled? Where I go for my significance and my security and my joy and my acceptance, the list goes on and on, is what I worship. So this woman thinks she's changing the subject? She's playing right into the hands of Jesus. This is right where he was leading her. Woman, uh, Jesus replied, believe me. She says, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and then four amazing words, and has now come. when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when He comes He'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared. I, the one speaking to you, am He. Wow. I'm the revealer. I'm the Messiah. And what I want to do is invite you to lay down what you've been going after to quench your soul's thirst and bring your worship into the realm of true worship. This is worship out here that will not address those deepest longings. True worship is when we're bringing our worship back to what our worship is meant for in the first place. Now, it's a powerful statement that God is seeking worshipers. And people hear that and think, what? And we think we interpret that in the context of our own egos. That God's up there thinking, you know what? I don't think my popularity polls enough. I need some more worshipers. As if he had a... God doesn't have an ego. The reason that he talks about seeking worshipers, when he says, I'm seeking your worship, he is wanting to restore you into the original purpose that you're made for, which is here, not out here. He says, I'm seeking your worship, meaning you are wired to acknowledge my enoughness, to submit before me, to come to me for your deepest longings. I'm coming after you as you're going after all this other stuff. I, several years ago, we were trying to figure it out, I think it's two or three years ago, I was guest preaching here, and I told the story, and some of you would have heard it, others have, and for, if you have, I apologize, the rest of you, I was elk hunting with my middle son, Joel. We actually talked about this a little bit on our Father's Day birthday celebrations last weekend. And if that's a, a troublesome t- term to you, hunting, just insert the word harvesting. So it, we were harvesting elk. And by the way, if you're an animal lover, I'm could be I'm one of your favorite hunters because all animals are very safe with me when I'm hunting them because I never get anything. So uh, they love when I, I hunt. I just get all the gear and look like a hunter, but I don't accomplish anything. So Joel and I were elk hunting up in the Rocky Mountains. We, we go with some guys who know what they're doing. About three in the morning, we rendezvous at a point. we up. We've got the maps out on the hood of one of their trucks and getting the GPS stuff out. And this guy's saying, you go here, you go there, you go there. So Joel and I went to where we were supposed to go. You didn't want to get settled before dawn. You can't do anything until dawn, but you listen. And we were listening, and lo and behold, about half an hour before dawn, some crashing was happening over there a little bit. We couldn't see anything, but we knew it was an elk, just because of the size of the branches that were being snapped. So as soon as dawn comes, we get up and we start tracking this animal. Now you might say, well, are you tra- it's your first time elk hunting, how are you tracking anything? Well, when you've got six inches of brand new powder, it had just snowed that night, you don't have to be Daniel Boone to track a 600 pound animal. So we're just following the tracks in the snow. Two couple of hours, he's long gone. About 10 o'clock or so, I say, buddy, we're, I look to Joe, I say, buddy, we're not going to get this guy but uh, we're near the rendezvous point. They had told us about 10 o'clock, if you're near this GPS coordinate, go there, you can get some hot chocolate or coffee and figure out a plan, a strategy for the rest of the day. So we headed over there, it's about a 20 minute hike from where we were. There was only one guy there, he had a thermos and he hadn't had any luck, he hadn't heard anything, seen anything, so we're talking to him. And after we'd been there, maybe 10, 15 minutes, some guys started, came up from where we had been. They were actually almost trotting. And they're pretty excited. We looked. We thought, man, they must have gotten something or whatever. And now they they came up and said, did you see him? I said, no, that elk is long gone. They said, no, no, not the elk, the lion. (laughs) I said, the what? They said, the mountain lion. I said, what mountain lion? They said, we've been on your trail for, oh, goodness, 20 minutes or so, and there's a, a mountain lion that was tracking you. said, show me. So we went back to the, hiked back up to where our our trail and tracks were. And sure enough, there was the elk's tracks. And on top of a few of his were my boot prints and Joel's boot prints. And inside some of our boot prints were the enormous paw prints of a mountain lion. Joel said, cool. (laughs) I said something different. And then... uh, We never saw the mountain lion, and you know, when you're hiking in the Rockies, you're often being watched by a mountain lion, I mean, but they never, they're very reclusive. Uh, But we never saw the mountain lion, we never saw the elk. But what I did see is this passage. This woman is pursuing what she thinks will satisfy her thirst, and Jesus comes along and says, let me tell you something, God's seeking you. While you're pursuing what you think, will address your deepest longings, God is pursuing you. While Joel and I were pursuing what we thought we wanted, we were being pursued. While you and I lived our lives this week pursuing all those different things that we thought would address our longings, I can say this with utmost confidence as a human being created in his image, he has been pursuing you, tracking you. As Brendan Manning would say, the Lion of Judah with relentless tenderness. He's been tracking you every day of your life. And so often while we're pursuing all our idols, he's simply right behind us saying, anytime you're ready, I want to restore you to the full life you were intended to reorient your worship back to what it was intended for. I'm calling you to true worship. What's that look like? He uses two words spirit and truth. So true worship is not a, religious, a religiosity ritual, but it's an all-of-life reaction to the worth of who God is and the worth of what He does. And that reaction looks like a number of things, but two things that come out in this text are submission and satisfaction. Satisfaction. Worship is not just singing and it's not just church. It's all of life that includes singing, but it includes me responding to Him, relating to Him, trusting Him, relying on Him. Following Him. And it involves both my head and my heart. It involves both spirit and truth. The word spirit there could mean Holy Spirit and could mean our spirit. It probably means both. Scholars go back and forth and both fit into the rest of the biblical context of what's necessary for worship. Uh, John Ortberg and Pam Howell uh, years ago talked about there's 10 man worship and scarecrow worship. 10 man worship is worship without a what? Heart. Scarecrow worship would be worship without a brain. Both are necessary. If I'm going to do true worship on a daily basis, not just in church as a religious ritual, but true worship as I'm relating with you, as I'm doing my hobbies, as I'm dealing with my taxes, as I'm going to a funeral, listening to the doctor, acknowledging what we sang a minute ago, that Christ is enough... If I'm living in that realm of true worship, it will involve both submission and satisfaction. Let's look at those together. First, submission. Submission to what? A religious ritual? No. A lot of people think that's, you know, worship is all about just mindlessly going through the the motions. Years ago, back in the 80s, I don't know if you know anything about British Parliamentary government, but... The Lord Chancellor in the British Parliament is the highest-ranking officer. There's one other guy that's higher than him on coronation days, but he's the guy. And there was a guy named Lord Hailsham. He was the the Lord Chancellor. And when Parliament is in session, I don't know if you know, have you ever seen the photographs, but man, the, the regalia, the court regalia, they wear the robes, the wigs, I mean, it's, it's impressive. Well, there was a, there was a member of, of Parliament named Neil Martins. And Neil and Lord Hailsham were really good friends. And Neil was taking some constituents for a tour around Parliament, around the halls of Parliament. You guys have seen it right there, Big Ben, the whole thing. It's pretty impressive. And these people were awestruck. You know, it's half dozen, eight people that were with him. And uh, they're walking through the halls, and they're just kind of, Uh, gaping at everything, mouths wide open. They round a corner, and there's Lord Hailsham in his full court, he was going into session, full court regalia, his robe, his wigs, they see him, the highest ranking officer in Parliament, there he is, and Lord Hailsham sees his good buddy Neil and says, Neil! And this entire group of tourists... Kneel, and then they realized, yeah, maybe he wasn't saying Neil K N E E L. We're with Neil N E I L, and they just kind of slowly came back up and gave everybody a laugh around them. But he had this booming voice. He says, "Neil, worship is not about just the submission of worship." Of true worship, it's not about just mindlessly going through motions. It's submitting to the truth about what will ultimately satisfy. 26 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, I tell you, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. It's not one or all, it's one or the other, it's all of the above. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know what it's like to be in water? Come to me. Come to me as way and come to me as life, but also come to me as truth. I will speak the truth to you about how you're made, how you're wired. Uh, In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Not just grace and not just truth, but grace and truth. John 8, 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is a reality that we want and the reality that is. There's a God that we like to fashion and then there's the God who is, as Pat Morley says. There's a Jesus who is and the Jesus that we want. They're not the same. Jesus comes and He speaks truth to us about who He is, but also about who we are and what will satisfy us. He says, this is where you will thrive in this realm of worshiping me, of submitting before me and the truth about who I am. You want to know the truth about your longings? The truth about the answer of that yearning for significance? Uh, come to me. Paul t- says it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, in other words, seeing the God demonstrated in creation in our consciences, that residue is there, we deny it. We suppress that truth. They neither glorified Him or, or, as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise they became fools so that goldfish is in here and kind of looks out there and says I think that will be really fulfilling to be out there that goldfish is a fool thinking it's doing the wise thing thinking it's doing something that will fulfill it but instead it destroys it it's some of what David Foster Wallace was referring to when he says worship will eat you alive the implication is the worship of the wrong thing Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools in exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. You're saying, well, goodness, that doesn't apply to us, those idols are way back then. Idolatry is alive and well. It's part of who we are as fallen image bearers because we're worshipers, remember? And we cannot stop worshiping. And if we are not worshiping the God that will bring life to us, we're worshiping something else that we think will bring life to us, and it doesn't. But we're always coming up. Your idols, your idol, your idol today, mine, they might be a little different because we're always looking for idols. John Calvin in his classic Treatise The Institutes, he talks about us being idol factories. He says this, we, we may gather that man's nature is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. We're always coming up. What's, what's the idol du jour? Oh, you know what? Becoming a, a great golfer didn't do it for me. Uh, maybe I'll become a, uh, a great fisherman. Oh, you know what? Uh, a million dollars didn't do it for me. Maybe I'll, I'll do two or didn't do it for me. Maybe I'll go for two. Harvard Business Review, by the way, last year did a survey, surveyed 4,000 millionaires and asked them the question, how much more money would it take for you to be truly happy? 26% of them said 10 times more uh, more money, So these are millionaires from, I don't, uh, they got got millions, but they varied. 26% of them said, if I could get 10 times more money, I'd be happy. 24% if I could get five times more, I'd be happy. 2% said if I could get 3% more, I would be happy. Only 13% of the millionaires said they had enough money to be happy. What was extraordinary is that it didn't matter how much money you had, the percentages were the same. Everybody who thinks they've arrived, it's still going to take a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised. They came up with their idols. We all do it. Jeremiah chapter 2 is the context of the phrase that Jesus is using with a woman when he says... I'm the fountain of living water, you're thirsty, what you're thirsty for is my living water. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 2 where God says, my people, in verse 13, my people have committed two sins, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, cisterns a water container. And so God is saying, I'm the only one that can address the deepest longings of your soul. But we don't want to submit to that truth, we want to create our own truth and say, you know what, what will quench my thirst? fashion water containers and that might be a hobby or a relationship or an amount of money or a degree and we put whatever that is or it might be a sin or an addiction and we put that up to our parched lips to try to quench our soul's thirst and it's nothing there because it's a mirage which is why later on in that same chapter in Jeremiah 2 verse 25 he says do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry but you said it's no use I love foreign gods and I must go after them And what Jesus says to this woman in verse 10 of John 4, he says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the truth, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So back to the idolatry chapter in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, he says, you seek me and you find me. You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. When I'm convinced of the truth, that this is where I belong, I become passionate, which involves my heart. It involves the satisfaction factor. It's not just the mind of engaging with this truth, explaining what will satisfy. It's my heart resonates with that. He says, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. Spirit, yes, the Holy Spirit's got to make me alive and enable me to worship, but my spirit as well. And again, it's not clear in the text if he's referring to the Holy Spirit or man's spirit, but both are human spirit, but both apply. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, you see Jesus say it very plainly about our hearts, our spirits, needing to be engaged. Matthew 15, verse 8, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in Their teachings are merely human rules. They're just going through the religiosity thing. He says their lips are moving, but their hearts are just not engaged. Just what happens in people doing worship, we do it out of ritual, out of politeness. This past week I was on a flight and I I was working. I was pretty focused. I didn't notice. I usually decline the pretzels you know those wonderful pretzels that they have. So, but I was working away, had my earphones on, and so the, they just laid them on the the tray next to me. And uh, midway through the flight, fairly long flight, about three hour flight, I, I started thinking, hmm, those pretzels look kind of good. So I opened them up, and I had a pretzel, and I don't know if they. Whoever was making them got real happy with the salt, but there was a ton of salt on these particular pre- that particular pretzel I said, "Wow, and I was already thirsty, that made me more thirsty i didn 't have any water. so what did I do? I ate another pretzel because that 's what you do to keep, it. and that 's typically what we do, by the way, when we 're going after idols, it doesn 't satisfy our thirst, so we just do it a little bit more, thinking, well, maybe, maybe if I have more, it 'll accomplish. So I, I, I burned through that whole bag of pretzels. And the last one I did a terrible job chewing or whatever, kind of stuck sideways in my throat. Now I was really wanting some water. And I didn't have any. And the guy next to me, in the seat next to me, um, he was asleep. And on his tray was a glass of water that had not been touched. Now I want to relax you. I did not. Some of you are thinking, please tell me you didn't steal the guy's water. I didn't, but it was tempting. But I flagged down a flight attendant as soon as I could, and I said, can I have some water, please? I don't know why. I was just really thirsty. She brought the water, handed me a little bottle, and I said, thank you. Now, here's the deal. Do you think I was just saying that with my lips or was my heart in it? I guarantee you my heart was in it. I was genuinely thankful. I wasn't just saying it out of politeness. But so often, we think of worship, and it's, we're not true worshipers. We just bring this ritual in, and we're politely singing a praise song, politely saying, God, I love you. God, I worship you. But our hearts are not in it. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 15. He says, and when your heart's not there. You're simply going through the motions. Stephen Charnock wrote a classic on the attributes of God, and he wrote this centuries ago. He said, without the heart, it is not worship. It's just a stage play. An acting part without being that person. A hypocrite in the notion of the word is a stage player. To worship without our spirits is presenting God with a picture, an echo, and nothing else. Psalm 63, verse 1, oh God, you're my God, conveniently I seek you. When the U.S. Open doesn't start until later in the day, I'll seek you in church. When it's convenient, I'll seek you. When I'm feeling okay, I'll seek you, no, earnestly I seek you. Now, why is he so earnest? Because he's convinced of something. Keep reading, he says, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you, in a dry and weary land where there is two words, I want everybody to say them. No Try it again, no water. He's convinced that there is no other water for his soul than here. And whenever I sin by taking something good, maybe like a a marriage or a job or particular sins and going after those to try to, to fulfill longings, what I'm doing is forgetting, choosing not to believe that there is no other water for my soul but God. And Jesus tells this woman, a time is coming and has now come. For you to once again become fully human and fully alive by being a true worshiper, it's how you are wired. So what's it going to be? On the flight I was actually studying some, thinking through this message, and the guy next to me had a movie on that I recognized because I watched it two weeks ago, it's called A Star Is Born. Starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. It's a great movie. Now, listen, just because I'm saying it's a great movie, don't go out there and tell people, our pastor is recommending A a Star is Born. Uh, There are all sorts of movies that that I like. But uh, the the, the theme of this movie, and so I got it out and watched it again. Uh, One particular section, as I was doing this study and I saw that movie, it reminded me of a scene that had moved me. And so I got online on the in-flight entertainment and went to that spot. The theme of the, the, the plot is Lady Gaga's character is a girl named Allie, who's a great singer and songwriter, but she's not been discovered. She's working as a, as a waitress. Uh, Jack, which is Bradley Cooper's character, is his rock star. They meet by happenstance, talk all night, part of that time in a grocery store parking lot. Allie composes a song right in, in, in front of, of of Jack, and he says, did you just write that just now? And it's a, it's a powerful song. By the way, they sang it at the Academy Awards uh, months later. But uh, back to the movie, she goes back, he, his driver takes her back to her her, her, her dad's home. and But then he sends his driver to get her and fly her to his next gig. And out of, after a lot of persistence, she agrees to go. So gets on the jet with a friend of hers. They fly to this concert. They're backstage over on the side of the stage. And he's doing the concert, sees that she's arrived. And then he says to everybody, I've got a friend here. She wrote a song. I'm hoping she'll sing it to you. And uh, he goes over. So the, the, the moment that I'm referring to is at a time stamp, 38 minutes and 15 seconds. Some of you might want to ask, why 38 minutes and 15 seconds? Glad you asked. So at that, it's at 38 minutes and 15 seconds that he comes over to her and says, I want you to come out here and sing that song you wrote with me. What's the name of the movie? A star is born. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? you got to be born again. To be born again is to be reborn into the original purpose you're made for. In that movie, shes if a star is going to be born, she's got to respond and come out on stage and sing it. And right, what Jesus is telling that woman, it's a 38 minute, 15 second comment. The time has now come. Are you going to worship, truly worship, instead of chasing all these idols? It's 38 minutes and 15 seconds in your life right now. I guarantee that whether you've been worshiping or not, it's will you now step out onto the stage before an audience of one and say, you alone are enough. I'll respond to you, Jesus, absolutely. I want to get back in the water as a fish in water, and I want to truly worship. And that is being fully alive.